Welcome to Speaking of Psychology, a bi-weekly podcast from the American Psychological Association. I'm your host, Caitlin Luna. Suicide rates in the U.S. climbed in all but one state from 1999 to 2016, according to a CDC report issued in June 2018. This alarming report and notable celebrity suicide deaths like Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade have pushed this topic further into the national spotlight. In this episode, we'll be exploring the factors that cause people to die from suicide, the effects of past trauma on mental health, and how psychologists can successfully treat suicidal patients. Our guest is Dr. Samuel Knapp, a licensed psychologist in Pennsylvania who has worked in rural community mental health centers delivering psychotherapy and crisis intervention services. He's the author of the forthcoming book, Suicide Prevention, an ethically and scientifically informed approach that will be published by APA in August. Suicide is also the cover story for the July-August issue of the Monitor on Psychology, APA's magazine for members that covers science, education, psychology practice, and more. Welcome, Dr. Knapp. Thank you. My first question for you is, why do people die from suicide? Suicide is multi-determined, meaning that many factors can be involved. But we have identified some common factors that reappear over and over again. One of the major ones is a lack of social connections. So that people perceive themselves as unwanted or as a burden to others. In fact, Dr. Thomas Joyner, a noted suicidologist, has used the term perceived burdensomeness to describe that sense of being a burden on others. And as a society, it appears that we are becoming more disconnected from each other. And that may be a factor in the increase in the suicide rates. But you know, the immediate cause might be a disruption of a social relationship, loss of a job, financial distress, some kind of humiliation. But usually there's a loss of social connectedness as well. You mentioned Dr. Thomas Joyner. He and other psychologists developed the interpersonal theory of suicide. Can you explain what that theory is? It's a very helpful theory and that it, on its surface, is very simple but it's actually very useful in that suicide is caused by both a desire to die and the capability of killing oneself. Mm-hmm. And the desire to die is, is usually associated with thwarted belongingness, not being part of a valued social group or perceived burdensomeness. And then, the, then you have the second step, which is the acquired capability that means a person has overcome the normal habituation, the, the normal inhibitions against harming oneself. We have very strong self-preservation instincts, and it takes a lot for people to overcome that. And it usually occurs when people have become habituated to pain and suffering, or they lose their fear of death. Mm-hmm. There, there's other, it's called an ideation to action theory. And there's other ideation to action theories, and they, they overlap a great deal, but all of them look at the unique role that acquired capability has in, in leading a person to die from suicide. And what do you think the factors are behind that steep rise in suicide deaths around the U.S. that was noted by the CDC? Well, I think it is the increased lack of uh, social connectedness that we have in society. 
Uh, no, suicide is also multi-determined, I mentioned. And we have to realize, too, that even though the nation itself is prosperous, there are many areas of the country and many professions where people are struggling financially. You know, farmers losing their, their family farms, a great sense of loss, a great sense of anger itself because they weren't able to make it. And so those are, those are factors as well. We have a very high incarceration rate in, in the United States. And uh, incarceration is often a, a life event that, that causes some people to attempt suicide. Mm-hmm. And that report did note that in some states, especially North Dakota, the suicide rate went up significantly during that time period. And Montana had the highest um, per capita rate in, the, I believe, between 2014 and 2016. Um, does that speak to some of the issues going on in rural areas, which you've had experience with? Yes. Uh, in fact, some people have referred to they call the geographical suicide belt, which is, you know, Western states, rural states, having increased rates of suicide. Now, there's many factors for this. One of which is that some of these states have a higher proportion of older adults, and older adults do die from suicide more frequently than younger people. They have a greater access to guns because it's very common for the average household to have a gun. Uh, they have uh, lack of adequate healthcare services in many of those areas. Uh, there's longer distances between people, greater risk of social isolation, younger people moving out, family members moving out. So you have all those factors that that appear to occur. There's nothing inherent about living in Montana that increases one's risk of suicide. It's just that people in Montana are more likely to have these high risk factors that we know about. Mm-hmm. And one very interesting thing in that report was that more than half of people who died by suicide did not have a diagnosed or known mental health condition at the time of death. So what does that tell us? The, the, that whole issue is, is controversial. You know, the relationship between a diagnosed mental illness and a suicide attempt. Now, Thomas Joyner, whom, whom I mentioned before, has did a study where he looked at the medical records of people, and even if they didn't have a diagnosed mental illness, a lot of them appeared to have symptoms that were were noted in the medical record, suggesting that perhaps they really did have a mental illness that was not diagnosed, or maybe maybe they were in in great distress but didn't meet a formal definition of mental illness. So I, I suspect that the rate of emotional turmoil or mental illness is probably higher far higher than what the CDC uh, suggested. There's also been some very useful research from Palo Alto University with uh, Dr. Joyce Chu, who looked at suicide among Asian Americans. And she found that the rate of mental illness, instead of being 90% higher, as most studies find, was about, I think, if I recall correctly, about 66%. So she's suggesting that mental illness is less a factor in Asian American uh, suicides. But then I wonder if some of these uh, Asian Americans didn't have cultural variations of distress that aren't picked up in the usual diagnostic nomenclature that based primarily on Western populations. Now, this is just speculation on my part, but uh, 
the CDC finding of less than half of people with diagnosed mental illness, I, I think we need to put that in perspective and say that might say more about our diagnostic system than about suicide itself, mm-hmm. which is almost always linked to great emotional turmoil, a diagnosable mental illness, or a cultural variation of a mental illness. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely a lot more involved in this than just some simply saying that these people didn't have. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Far more than that. Mm-hmm. And going back to what you're talking about, about older people, um, there was an investigation by Kaiser Health News and PBS NewsHour that found that older Americans are quietly killing themselves in nursing homes, assisted living centers and adult care homes. What are your thoughts about about that report? Well, there there is a. Uh, what we call passive suicidal ideation. Now, going back to the interpersonal theory, remember there was the desire to die and then the, the capability of dying. And some of the people in nursing homes may have a desire to die, but because they're in a restricted environment, they don't have the capability or maybe they don't have, maybe they haven't become sufficiently habituated to pain and suffering that they've overcome their inhibitions against actually killing themselves. But there is such a thing as a passive suicidal ideation. People just wish that God would take them away and wish that they didn't have to live anymore, even though they can't actively take steps to, to kill themselves. And it, uh, people in nursing homes are more likely to have some of the, the risk factors associated with suicide, such as a, a comorbid mental illness, uh, uh, I mean, a comorbid physical illness, chronic pain restriction in their activities of daily living, loss of connection with other people. In fact, one study found that when suicides do occur in nursing homes, it's very often occurs when a loved one has been transferred out of a nursing home and so a big social connection has been lost. Also, a very interesting perspective by psychologist Kim Van Orden talked about the role that ageism might play in this, which is something I hadn't thought about, which I probably should think about because I'm an old man. But people get put into an age role. You're expected, your expectations people, they, they can't do this stuff or they're not interested in things. They just need to sit in a corner. And you know, maybe that's a factor too that I had not thought about before. Mm-hmm. You've spoken a lot about the the importance of social connections, and and I think that might apply in this case. I want to get your thoughts on it. But um, more than a million children and teens in the U.S. were admitted to the emergency room for suicidal thoughts or suicidal attempts, an amount that doubled between 2007 and 2015, according to JAMA Pediatrics. Do you have any insights on why this is happening? Is it related to that social connection that you were talking about before? I think it is. And, and there's also been some speculation on, the, not more than speculation, some research on the ro- role of, of um, smartphones, social media. And some people are thinking that it isn't the smartphones per se that's leading people to increase the risk of suicide, but that it interferes with normal, healthy, direct interpersonal contact that people have and so 
having a smartphone isn't intrinsically bad for a teenager, but it becomes bad if it keeps them from engaging in experiences that are really helpful and good. But uh, yes, um, disconnectedness, uh, it's, 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 it's a very serious problem with adolescence. It's a society-wide problem that needs to be addressed. Yeah, I did a recent podcast um, earlier this year about loneliness, oh, um, which, is okay. very, which is very fascinating. It talked a lot about the importance of social connections for our physical and mental well-being. It was very, yes. very good, very good conversation. Um, and going back, you also mentioned too when we were talking about some of the other rural states, some issues that might come into play there, but I think this is more of a national issue. But um, the National Bureau of Economic Research released a paper in late April that found that when the minimum wage in a state increased, or when the state offered good tax credits for working families, the suicide rate decreased. What do you think about that? It makes sense. Uh, you you have the loss of income, you have financial insecurity, you uh, uh, males are socialized into a breadwinning role, and if they fail to do that, it's a source of great humiliation. So that makes a lot of sense to me. That as income inequality rises, as as uh, uh, financial insecurity increases, people who are vulnerable to suicide, that's an added burden. Mm -hmm. One of the greatest spikes in suicide in the United States was in the early 1930s during the early years of the Great Depression. And I mean, that's, that's a prototypical example of the impact of economic insecurity on suicide rates. Mm -hmm. I want to talk a, a bit about the lasting impact of trauma, um, specifically in relation to three, high, three recent high-profile suicides. Uh, one of those was Jeremy Richmond, whose daughter was killed at Sandy Hook, and then two Parkland school shooting survivors. Can you explain the lasting impact of a traumatic experience on a person's mental health? Yeah, so this relates to the uh, interpersonal theory of suicide. And as, as I mentioned, acquired capability is one of the factors that Thomas Joyner has identified as related to a suicide attempt. And the acquired capability occurs when people have had exposure to violence, they become habituated to suffering, and they, they lose their fear of death. And this explains why. You, you look at at statistically higher rates of suicide. And they find that they occur among people who are physicians, people who are sex workers, police officers, uh, homicide detectives. And you think, well, what do all these groups have in common? And one thing that they do have in common is exposure to pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. And so when people have that, now, now Losing your fear of violence, uh, fear of uh, suffering isn't necessarily bad because you don't want to have a physician who's so afraid of suffering that says she can't do her job well or a police officer who's so afraid of of suffering that uh, she becomes paralyzed in, in, in a time when action is needed. But when it's combined with the desire to die, then it becomes uh, – a factor in a suicide attempt. So we have people, these people, uh, I mean, I don't know them. I don't, only thing I know is, you know, the very brief thing is that they had been exposed to trauma and violence. But people who are exposed to trauma and violence do have an increased risk of 
developing that acquired capability to kill themselves. You find this with child abuse victims too. Now, most of the people who are victims of child abuse will go on uh, and despite the, the great pain involved, they can carve out good lives for themselves. But statistically, they are at a higher rate to die from suicide if, if they've been a victim of childhood violence. So you, you do create this habituation of pain and suffering that does increase the risk to people. Mm-hmm. And because these the people I mentioned had experienced these incredibly traumatic events in their lives. Yes. Yeah, I think that one, the one thing that was really... Um, I guess struck me about those stories was, was how many years it was later. So especially for the, 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 the father of the Sandy Hook victim. Um, and he was very actively involved in research into why people commit violence. And yet years later he did die by suicide. Um, does this, did, what does this tell us about how trauma can can last for a long period of time? Does it say anything more about how you might feel fine for several years, but then there could be a point where you just it gets to be too much and you decide to take this action? Well, it, it is a factor. And um, hopefully most people experiencing trauma will be able to get some help, be able to put the trauma in the, in the back, their lives and um but you know not always uh, as as these cases illustrate and i want to talk talk about too about do suicides cluster together i know this can be a very controversial topic um and and there was just a, an article a bunch of um news stories released recently about the increase in suicide deaths among teens after the airing of the show 13 Reasons Why. And many of the articles were cautious on making a link between that, but they did note an increase in suicide deaths after that show aired. And we've seen this before about um, after a celebrity dies, You sometimes I've heard that the rate of suicide does increase after that. Is there a connection and do they cluster together? Well, we have we have two things going on. One is, is called... Uh, Contagion and the other is called cluster. Yeah, can you explain what each one is? Yeah, sure. So um, after the death of a celebrity by suicide, there's a great deal of publicity to it, and many studies have been done on the impact of this death upon suicide rates. There's, and it's very hard to research because there are natural variations in suicide rates during the spring, during the fall. Suicide rates tend to increase. So if a celebrity uh, dies by suicide in April, well, there's going to be an increase in suicide rates anyways. Mm-hmm. So you have to figure out how much is the increase due to the increased exposure of the suicide versus the natural increase. Uh, th- there was a, a review in the uh, about a year ago that says there's a slight impact of publicity of of celebrities on suicide rates, a very small impact. When you look at all these different studies, some which, which found an impact, some didn't. You look at them all together, there might be a slight uh, contagion effect. But we look at clusters, which is different. Now, clusters is, is when you know someone personally who's died from suicide. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, in some schools, there are all of a sudden, several suicides 
of students in a school who sometimes they knew each other. And is this just a coincidence? I mean, sometimes it might be just a coincidence, but is there some kind of effect to the suicide of one person increase the risk of suicides for other people? And it appears that there is an impact. You know, mm -hmm. knowing someone who's died from suicide does increase a person's risk of dying from suicide themselves. It depends on how well they knew the person, uh, many other factors, but there is a, a slight increase in risk. Now, why is that? Now, some people say it might be a modeling effect, it might be habituation to violence. People uh, knowing someone who's died from suicide might see it as as an option. There's there's also been discussions about how should public schools respond publicly when a when a student dies from suicide. How can you honor the student's life without glamorizing it? Mm -hmm. And so there's guidelines established by the American Association of Suicidology on how to do that so that um, it doesn't appear to glamorize it or, or um, increase the risk of other students uh, dying from suicide. There, there's something called social network theory, which says that Many of our traits are similar to those who are close to us, up to three degrees of separation. So if you know someone who died from suicide, your risk is going to be higher. If you know someone who knew someone who died from suicide, it's going to be a little bit higher. Three degrees of separation is going to be a tiny bit higher. And beyond that, there's probably not, not an effect. But yeah, there, is, there does appear to be a cluster effect. Does it seem like suicide, the spotlight is on suicide more now today than it was in the past? Or do you think homicides get more attention? Well, I think there's more attention on suicide as, as it should be. It's been neglected a great deal. Mm -hmm. Now, as, as part of the attention started because of the high suicide rates in the United States military. Uh, but now it's a 30% increase in suicide since 1999. And uh, so it, deser it deserves to be in the public spotlight. It's a very neglected area of public health. For example, in the Golden Gate Bridge, there's been, I think, 2,000 suicides or something like that since the bridge was constructed. They built a bicycle lane. Even though the number of people being injured riding bicycles in the Golden Gate Bridge is minuscule. Spent millions of dollars on a bicycle lane for safety purposes. I'm not opposed to a bicycle lane, but that was a priority over putting a net underneath the bridge, which would save people from dying from suicide, even though far more people died from suicide than that died from bicycle accidents on the Golden Gate Bridge. Now, that's just one example. You look at funding for research. Suicide is the 10th or 11th leading cause of death in the United States, uh, comparable to lung disease, kidney diseases. Even though lung disease and kidney disease each receive about 20 times the amount of federal funding for research mm -hmm. than suicide does. So we are really disadvantaged in, in terms of research because of the, the 
lack of funding. It really is being a, a, a very serious neglected area of public health. And I think it has to do with myths and, and uh, prejudice, stigma against people who have mental illnesses and, and who attempt suicide. Yeah, that's what, exactly what I was going to ask you. Do you think it's because of um, the stigma? It's, it's, it does seem in general that the stigma might be lifting a little bit as the more it gets discussed. But, you know, that's the research needs, the research dollars need to catch up with that, with Absolutely. public opinion changing. Absolutely. The Monitor article stated that psychologists who study suicide are still members of a relatively small group because historically most research was done by psychiatrists who work with patients in psychiatric settings. Why is it critical to have psychologists study suicide? Well, fortunately, uh, psychologists are getting more involved in the study of suicide and the quality of research is excellent in my opinion i mean obviously much more needs to be done but in, in the last few years the the research is phenomenal and has very real public health implications uh, for example efficacy of treatments we now know that there are we've always suspected that mental health treatment is going to save lives of people who die from suicide who are at risk to die from suicide. But now we have evidence that really shows without a doubt that you have research by Craig Bryan and David Rudd on cognitive behavior therapies, David Jobes on collaborative assessment and management of suicidality, Marshall Linehan, dialectical behavioral therapy, and you know, a, a Guy Diamond's attachment-based therapy. We have these studies that show yeah, you know, we really have effective treatments. And and research study more on the phenomena of what happens in the suicidal crisis state. You know, some really good research by Raymond Tucker and Megan Rogers and Thomas Joyner on, and Igor Gelenker on the suicide crisis state, what happens immediately before a person attempts suicide. Where this is really opening a lot of... Um, of possibilities as far as prevention and treatment is, are concerned. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm just so impressed by the psychologists who are working in this area. I benefit a great deal from their research. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful to know that there's a lot of a lot of great research coming out in this field that will help people moving forward. Um, and I want to talk about some more of the practical tips for people. How do we recognize the signs of someone who might be contemplating suicide? Well, it's, it's not always easy to, to do. And and there's been these warning, lists of warning signs that people have developed. And sometimes the lists become very, very long. And one of the problems is that they become so long, they become useless because there's so many factors that are, you know, so marginally related to suicide that, well, well one list I see, if a teenager is disrespectful to a teacher, you know, that's, well, okay, t it's not good that teen teenagers are, are disrespectful, but that's not they, – they're disrespectful for a lot of different reasons, of which suicidal thoughts might be one out of many, many, many. But if you go th thinking, oh, this child is disrespectful, they must be suicidal, well, you're just going to be wrong so many, much of the time that these warnings lists become meaningless. But uh, one of the best things to – ways to find out is just ask someone mm -hmm. or or you can or you can take a step back and you just how are you doing overall how are you doing 
if you're concerned about someone, focus on your re- relationship with them. You know, spend time with them. You know, thinking like in a family, parent, a parent and a child, or a, a child and an older parent. How are you doing? Spend time with them. Quality of time. Now, because of some of the research that I mentioned, um, Raymond Tucker and Megan Rogers and others, we do know more about the immediate psychological uh, uh, states that people have before a suicide attempt. And there are some things that that occur, agitation, insomnia, irritability. We mentioned perceived burdensomeness, sense of entrapment, humiliation. Those are, are, we know those states are present in a large number of uh, people who eventually go on to die from suicide. So that's one of the practical applications of some of the recent research that we've had. So in terms of intervening, if a loved one is, you're worried about a loved one, it can be something like, as you mentioned, saying something about how are you doing, that sort of thing. What are other ways you can intervene to keep someone safe? Well, I mean, if they're, if they're currently suicidal, you know, right now, you know, you ask them, are you suicidal? Yes, I am. Get them into treatment. Uh, and uh, work with the treatment provider. Be willing to be an asset to the treatment provider and what they're doing. And um, it's hard to generalize because there's so many different uh, – um, every case is is, individ- is uh, unique. But um, – uh, doing what you can to promote their overall well-being and going back once again to the sense of connection, uh, making sure that you have a good relationship. Now, uh, family members usually are very well-intentioned and they need to draw up a balance between uh, being uh, helpful and being overly paternalistic, overly controlling, which sometimes people do when they're afraid someone is suicidal, they'll be, tend to be bossy and, and um, uh, dogmatic and pushy and it, it, the motives might be good, but that actually can turn people off mm-hmm. as opposed to making them feel closer. And how do psychologists treat suicidal patient, patients? What research-informed interventions do you use in your practice or do you suggest others use? Well, I mentioned some of them and um, you know, cognitive behavior therapy, uh, dialectical behavioral therapy, collaborative assessment management, suicide. There's also uh, what we call suicide management strategies. But, uh, you know, looking at the broad question, there's there's a very good book uh, edited, edited by Louis Cassengay and Clara Hill on why some therapists are better than others. And in one of the chapters there, it says, okay, what, what, what do really good therapists do? And one of them was like good relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, they practice hard at what they do. They're, they're humble. And, and this is really good because humility, ability to look at oneself objectively because they're not afraid of feedback. They, they elicit feedback. If a patient isn't doing better, they want to know about it, and they will go out of their way to get the feedback. And then we look at what is there specific about 
suicidal patients other than good therapy in general. And there was a very nice article uh, recently by Craig Bryan on some of the common factors in effective suicide treatments. Now, he was looking at treatments in the military, but I think this applies uh, um, in other places as well. One of them was making sure that patients are engaged in treatment and they believe in treatment and follow through with treatment. You don't, can't always assume that. Sometimes people come in so demoralized that uh, they feel, oh, nothing's going to help me or I'm not worth saving, that getting their buy-in is really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, teaching specific skills. People are in a great deal of emotional distress and giving them skills. Oh, for example, insomnia has a very strong link with suicide attempts. It, it greatly increases the risk that someone's going to attempt suicide if, among all the other things, they're not sleeping mm-hmm. well at all, have chronic insomnia. And knowing that, being able – and there's things that people can do. There's there's a sleep hygiene. There's um, imaginal rehearsal that can be done to, to reduce nightmares. There's some medications that can be done to – uh, in the short term to improve sleep. So knowing that stuff, being being able to get their emotional arousal down, giving them skills is important. And then another very important one that uh, naive psychotherapists uh, miss, but it's very crucial, and that is suicide management. Mm-hmm. Is being able to give concrete steps so a person is less likely to attempt suicide than um, uh, in the short term. You want to keep them safe in the short term so the psychotherapy has a chance to work. And that's a very important thing to do. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, there's been some very good research on suicide management programs, such as um, uh, Greg Brown and Barbara Stanley on some safety management uh, strategies and some other researchers have done work on that, that really gives very concrete steps on things which have been empirically verified to help people reduce the risk of suicide. You know, there's one study that was done when it asked uh, veterans, Why, what kept you from killing yourself? And the, number, and the number one reason they gave, I mean, they gave many different reasons, but the most common one was, my psychotherapist cared about me. Wow. And that certainly does say a lot. It does. Mm-hmm. You want you want to build a relationship. You want at the end of the first session, you want the the patient to to think this psychotherapist really cares about me, and you also want them to have a chance to tell their story. Now, one one of the advances in treatment with with people who are not experienced working with suicidal patients, there there might be a fear. They might be alarmist. They might uh, become over-controlling. Oh, you got to go to the hospital. Or, uh, or I have to tell your family members. I don't care what you think. I'm going to tell your family members regardless of what you think. And, over-controlling, bossy. But, and and that, that can turn people off very quickly. Mm-hmm. But it's much better to listen to them. Instead of arguing with them, oh, you, you should live. Here's the reasons you should live. For every reason you give, they're going to tell you, 
two reasons why they shouldn't live. You're never going to win that argument. Mm -hmm. But it's much better to give the experience of having someone listen to you. You have the experience of a human connection. So you're not arguing with them, but you're giving them a meaningful human experience that intrinsically makes life worth living. And that's better than any argument you could ever give. For people who've experienced the loss of a loved one by suicide, how do they best cope in the aftermath? Oh, that's very difficult. The the pain of people who suffer afterwards is very great. There was a study done which looked at families of veterans who had a, a member die from suicide and those who died from natural causes or from combat. And when a family member died from suicide, the adjustment was far worse. Mm-hmm. And you, you think about why is that? Well, one of which is shame, guilt, stigma. And people ask themselves, why didn't I pick up on it? Well, what could I have done differently? What's wrong with me as a spouse that I didn't pick up on this? And the reaction of others is often worse. And people have described where they had friends for years and then they just dropped them. Mm-hmm. Or they, they, they have, have people who would, would never bring it up. You know, there you are consumed by grief, the most important thing in your life, and people aren't talking about it. Or if, they do, if they, you do bring it up, they change the subject. Uh, so the, the, uh, the reaction of others is very important. Uh, in, in the post, um, uh, post-death post adjustment. Mm-hmm. So how do you go on? You just go on like you would otherwise. You rebuild your life. And if possible, you connect with other survivors mm-hmm. who've gone through through very similar experiences. And the American Association of Suicidology does have survivor groups that um, uh, opportunities for people to connect with others when there's been a loved one who's died from suicide. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are great resources for people. Um, Is there any advice for a long-term impact on the surviving family members and friends? I mean, does it change, you know, right after the event versus a year or two later or five years later? You know, I don't know. You you know, you, the general trend is after trauma, people move to a baseline, but I don't know the long-term data on that. Now, we do know that statistically, you know, we talked about the cluster effect. We know that statistically when a family member dies from suicide, increases the suicide risk of of everyone in the family. Now, it's, it's even more of an effect than uh, with a friend it may be that there are common biological factors that predispose a person to a mental illness. It might be a similar stressful environment. We don't know. But, um, uh, but obviously most, most family members don't go on to die from suicide themselves. Um, but other than that, I don't know much about the long-term adjustment mm-hmm. of families. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Knapp. It's been a really wonderful conversation, very insight, very informative. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. The Monitor Story on Suicide published online on July 1st. You can read it by visiting APA's website at apa.org slash monitor. And a reminder to all of our listeners who want to hear from you, you can email me your comments and ideas at kluna at apa.org. That's K-L-U-N-A at apa.org. 
Also, please consider giving us a rating in iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. Speaking of psychology is part of the APA podcast network, which includes other great podcasts such as APA journals, dialogue about new psychological research and progress notes about the practice of psychology. You can find all of our podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to our website, speakingofpsychology.org to listen to more episodes. I'm Caitlin Luna with the American Psychological Association.